presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Welcome, everybody, to episode 51 of First Years. And for this episode, we have another special guest. I have Zach with me from Belated Binge. Hello. Welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm on First Years, so I'm living my best life. Isn't that what (laughs) the kids say? (laughs) Yes, that is what they say. I'm doing my best. I was going to go with lit. Um, I thought that was probably dated. Um, I I used to shake it off from Taylor Swift in like my first official episode of my podcast. So I'm pretty sure that I've lost everyone under the age of, I don't know, 40. (laughs) I know I did. I did hear that. And I I laughed and you're like, am I old? (laughs) Um, But confirmed. Confirmed. Gray hair is confirmed. You're um you're newer to the Harry Potter podcasting sphere. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Belated Binge before we dive into chapters ten and eleven of Order of the Phoenix? Sure. Um. So yeah, I'm super new to the to the Harry Potter uh, podcast world. Um, just a handful of episodes in. Um, <clears throat> so Belated Binge was kind of birthed from two pr- primary um things i guess the first is that when i was in my early 20s i was in uh, an air talent for small market radio and then i left in 2015 to get a real job and i missed having a microphone in my face so since then i've been wanting to start a podcast Um, and then the second thing is that i have what i'm self-diagnosing as a bit of an obsessive personality when it comes to interests I have to pump the brakes before people freak out. Not relationally. I'm not watching anybody, you know, hang their shower curtain from the yard, although the new couch looks great. Uh, <laughs> but it's more more my interests, more my the way that I take in entertainment. I tend to dive down rabbit holes rather than like uh I'm, uh <laughs> my mind always goes back to sports at all times. I'm not a sports center guy. I'm a listen to 17 NBA podcasts kind of guy. Like I just dive super deep down things. And so for me to take in anything new, like uh, it is almost a commitment that I have to make to it. And I have to be mentally ready to do that. So I miss everything that is popular and good all the time. It never fails. I have no idea what the like new craze thing is that everybody is watching right now. I will find out in probably about 10 years and then I'll do a podcast about it. Uh, And that's how I ended up with this Harry Potter podcast is I was literally the exact same age as movie Harry, like real, real creepy close to the same exact age. And I didn't read the series until I was like 25. 
I was smack dab in their target demo and somehow just missed just, it. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. And I went on a long rant about some of the reasons why I missed it on my podcast, which I'm not going to take over yours with, but uh, yeah, I missed it completely. Um, aside from the first like couple of books when I was super young, uh, but as far as actually reading the series, going cover to cover and, and understanding and remembering anything that I had that I'd read at all, uh, I was in my mid twenties. And as soon as I read them, I that obsessive like uh, I don't know nerd came out, and I just went immediate to listening to podcasts and watching the theory videos on YouTube and diving down every rabbit hole I could find with the exception of getting super into fan fiction. That's one area of the fandom I've not gone super deep into. It's a dangerous route to go down. It really, and that's why I think, um, because my, uh, my consumption of Harry Potter actually happened while I was at work. (laughs) So, (laughs) um probably gotta stay out of the fan fiction rabbit holes but no that's how I ended up so I I started putting two and two together as I was trying to decide what to do a podcast on when I was finally able to somehow do it because I you know had a kid and decided that now that I have zero time at all let's go ahead and start a podcast um (laughs) Harry Potter was just the logical choice as the first series to binge and so that's what we do on Belated Binge. We just binge the series um, and we talk about it. Absolutely spoilerful. We get into the nitty gritties and we theorize and we talk a lot like I'm doing that's, right now. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and like the good thing is about being late to all of these fandoms is that you'll have content forever for your podcast. And the fact oh, that I you know. like. <laughs> I know. The fact that you like going down rabbit holes, um, you're in the right place <laughs> for that. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. And that was one of the things. So I have this like really ridiculous criteria about what I consider eligible to be a belated binge series. And it's that I had to be super late to take it in and it has to be bingeable. So for instance, I'm not going to do like the Fantastic B series as a part of the podcast because they're happening now. I was watching them when they were new, you know, like that. I wasn't late to that particular party. You know, they'll be referenced in the show, you know, right. when things are relevant, but it's not going to be, we're not going to sit down and do like, let's do the Fantastic B series, you know, one through hopefully more than three but they really got to figure some stuff <laughs> we'll see, out I but, guess. <laughs> <laughs> right um yeah but uh harry potter seemed like the the most logical first uh binge to just go all in on mm-hmm. and it's been a lot of fun so far and hopefully i don't have to stop anytime soon i hope not <laughs> crickets 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 <laughs> yes yeah, as, as long as long as there's you know four people that want to hear it like i'll talk yeah <laughs> if it gets under four though i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no pressure on that fourth person right right come on uh-huh. mom come on figure out how <laughs> podcasts work <laughs> um so we're talking about chapters 10 and 11 today of order of the phoenix and so we 
uh, these are the chapters just after Harry's hearing at the ministry. And, you know, we had this really great high of Harry getting off on all the charges, followed by a pretty low, low of, um, you know, not just him sort of getting jealous over the prefect thing, but also him seeing the photograph of all of the order members from the first war that are dead now, and also Mrs. Weasley's Bogart, um, and just seeing all of the Weasley, the members of the Weasley family, um, dead. And so I feel like at this point in the book, we're starting to realize the consequences of like the first wizarding war that happened, you know, even before the first book and things are, are kind of, um, they're starting to get really real basically. And this on page 208, it says, um, quote, he had felt that his return to Hogwarts so long anticipated was full of unexpected surprises, like jarring notes in a familiar song. And I kind of feel like that's how our arrival at Hogwarts is like, it doesn't really go according to plan. (laughs) Um, and not so smooth arrivals at Hogwarts, like aren't uncommon. Like we see that in book two, and three. Um, but I feel like this one is 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 full of a lot more like little unexpected things that kind of take the magic away from arriving at Hogwarts, which, which is usually Harry's favorite part um, in the book and like our favorite part in the book because we get to, you know, finally leave the Dursleys and, you know, get back to Hogwarts, which is like the more exciting place to be. Um, and so it's like we have Ron and Hermione having to go to the prefect's carriage, Harry not really being as cool as he wants to be in front of Cho, Haggard's missing, Dumbledore gets interrupted, and Harry sees horses that are like, that have been invisible to him until now. So I guess like, what does that kind of say that like our our journey to Hogwarts really hasn't been as smooth as it might have been in previous books? I mean, I think this was the only way that it could go, right? Because it was almost too good for Harry to get through that hearing, get through being potentially railroaded completely. Thank you, Dumbledore, by the way, for showing up however many hours early it was. Yeah, three hours early by a happy mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, and by happy mistake, it was, I knew you were going to pull some crap. But, uh, like, it, we can't have a hero's journey, even within the context of one of the seven books, without it being fraught with, you know, just beating the hero down so that they have something to, you know, get through. You know, so the idea that he got through that hearing so, so early and it went so well he's able to go back to hogwarts he's super excited about it he even gets you know a, a puppy hug on on his way to the train like everything is going too well it had to have some sort of crash and burn to it and this is just the way that we got it i, I yeah i really like I like how you explain that. And I think I totally agree. I hadn't thought about it like that before where like, yeah, there has to be, I mean, obviously in every book, the main character has to go through challenges, but like, yes, um, you know, that very high, high followed by that low and sort of followed by all of these like mini challenges along the way, um, you know, even starting from, 
you know, getting to the train, you know, Sirius decides to come along, which may or may not have been a good idea. We don't know. Malfoy kind of drops drops a hint that he might know that that was serious. Um, and Harry, like he's had a very emotional journey in this book so far. Um, he went through a lot at the end of book four um, and then sort of opened up this book feeling very isolated, kind of separated from his friends. And now again, like with Ron and Hermione having to be in the prefix carriage, like now Harry kind of has to hang out with people who aren't his best friends on the Hogwarts Express for like the first time ever. And like, it's so small, but I feel like it totally matters. Like Ron even has to justify like, oh, I'm not enjoying this. I just kind of have to do it because he feels bad. He also doesn't want to look like Percy. Like he has a a very distinct, (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm not Percy. This is not fun. But no, it is. It's a blow. It's a blow for Harry for sure. And it's, and this is the first time that he's had to go to Hogwarts. And he points it out in the chapter. This isn't revelationary, but it's the first time that he's had to go to Hogwarts without Ron by his side the whole way there, no matter what weird death trap they were taking to get there. It was always the two of them. And what kind of strikes me with this is that for being the chosen one, the boy who lived the celebrity that he came into this world as, he's not the most popular dude, even though, can we just say he probably should be after all of the things that have happened in these books so far? You would (laughs) think so. Um, But yeah, I mean, I feel like it, it was almost like, you know, Harry is this kind of like celebrity. And then like when he doesn't shake Draco Malfoy's hand in book one, that's when like, you know, he he could have, you know, sort of been on the top of the world if he had become friends with Draco Malfoy, but Harry has better morals than that. And so declined. And then it's like, okay, well now you have an enemy who's going to turn a whole bunch of other people against you. Um, and I think, yeah, Harry has friends. Um obviously but yeah like not everyone has been like really like sucking up to harry or anything in this series and i feel like even now that's even more fraught when we see like what the daily prophet has been writing about harry so far right it's and that's what i was that's kind of what i was saying it's not just that he didn't shake draco's hand and didn't get on the top mountaintop with you know the malfoy uh cosign or whatever but just the things that he has done throughout the series at school you know being the youngest seeker in a century in book one saving the sorcerer's philosopher's stone which was a complete secret yet naturally everyone in the school knows but then immediately in book two, everybody's turned against him and ready to call him the heir of Slytherin and, and is just convinced that he's trying to kill Muggleborns. Like, how do you have that juxtaposition? And it continues almost every other book, it seems like, all the way up till now. He goes from being Triwizard Champion, which was fraught with its own school turning completely against him because he was a cheater getting in and whatever and just fame seeking to oh no we're actually going to support you now and oh no you actually just won the thing that should be enough like what is the triwizard equivalent in our world what is what is that like uh how far how far beneath crumb being a seeker in the world cup 
to Triwizard Champion is it? Like, what's the rung there? Yeah, that's a really <laughs> good question. I'm not sure I know what it is. Um, but it's I mean, so did true. He, did he go to the Olympics? You know, I, like, I think that's what the thing the... that comes closest, right? <laughs> right. So you just went to the Olympics. You got a gold medal. It was a completely traumatic one. But now all it took was a month of people reading some stuff in a newspaper that is fabricated and garbage to just completely turn on him again. And he doesn't like, where are his truthers? I guess where's his, where are his social media warriors that are just always behind Harry? He has like his core handful of people, you know, he's got the creavies. Thank, thank God for the creavies. But for the most part, everybody else is just like ready to just completely turn on him at the drop of a hat every single book it seems like and it just it's mind-boggling that it's it's he's even able to yeah it's he should have been able to walk onto this train after being the triwizard champion and you know freaking hero of every book so far and everybody just be like whipping their you know train compartment doors open like hey harry you can come sit with us but but no he's he's got to go sit with Luna Lovegood and Neville Longbottom and get dragged there by uh, younger Ginny Weasley. Like it, it is odd to me at the very least he's the high school quarterback, right? Like he's the Quidditch star. I mean, what what are we doing here? It's, it's crazy how, yeah. Like how, and maybe that's the whole point is like, that people are so susceptible to believing rumors and how rumors can sort of spiral out of control. And, you know, we see this later in these chapters when he has his fight against Seamus, who, who, whose mom has been reading the daily prophet and Harry, you know, sort of realizes that he really didn't get a chance to explain himself at the end of last year. Not that Harry should have had to so close to experiencing the trauma that he did and Dumbledore did explain what happened but yeah it's it's amazing how like one rumor can just turn everybody against Harry and how people are so quick to believe that Harry is attention seeking um when Harry really hasn't been you know he's never been doing this for the attention like he's had all of this attention from day one and he really hasn't asked for it like if anyone is attention seeking like it's Draco <laughs> like honestly um and it, it it's amazing especially you know in one of my last episodes I talked about you know Percy Weasley who has known Harry for years decides that Harry's word is not credible and he's just not going to believe it and this is someone that Harry knows like wasn't good friends with but like was family friends with who like knew and like knew well enough to like go over to that house, like over the summer and Percy dismisses Harry. And so if it's that easy for somebody who knows Harry to do that, like all of the acquaintances at school as they're gossiping and like getting this like media from the this government run media against Harry Potter, um, you know, they're going to turn against him just as easily, which is really sad, especially when we talk about Seamus, like he's been sharing a dorm with Harry since book one. Like this isn't a stranger. Like Seamus inevitably is closer to Harry Potter than Percy ever was. And Seamus just like doesn't believe him or or at least 
is questioning everything after reading the daily prophet for two months. Yeah. And it, I, I kind of, I, because my mind always goes to sports, like it still baffles me that he doesn't at least have a, a bubble that's just ready to stick up for him, you know, outside of the previous, like I mentioned, you know, like when I look and I say everything, you know, goes to sports, you know, Michael Jordan punches his teammate, Steve Kerr in the face, you know, and you know, is revealed to have a gambling problem. He's still Michael Jordan. Everybody's, you know, there's still millions that just absolutely love and adore him. Kobe Bryant was accused of rape, like still had his huge following. You know, Ray Lewis was actually charged with murder before pleading it down and continuing his Hall of Fame football career. You know, outside of sports, we actually just saw in uh, country music, there's a really popular artist that got caught using a racial slur on video. And he took like he's taken a lot of heat in like the official media, but he has just thousands of people that are just ready to support him and defend him online constantly. And I just it feels like Seamus should have been one of those for Harry, you know, with what they've shared, what they've been through, what they've done. I mean, granted, these are some of the things I you know, bring up are extreme examples of just like awful things. But it just goes to show like you when you reach a certain status level uh, within a population, you have your supporters that just never leave your side. And oftentimes very vocal ones, you know, in our world, very, very vocal ones. And he does not have the vocal support. He has his core group. He has the order of the Phoenix and, you know, his, you know, just handful of actual friends and, there's nobody else that's really standing up for him. And you would think that this would have been more of a push and pull within the wizarding world. Like there would have been, I don't know, letters to the editor, owls showing up at the daily prophet, you know, ready to spew him with stink sap or something because they were besmirching him. Apparently only Hermione gets that kind of treatment. If she mistreats the Potter boy in media, um, which I I have a another rabbit hole that we can go down on the prophet in, in a bit if you will entertain me, but it's still I still don't get how he doesn't have how he doesn't have that you know core group and how how Seamus wouldn't be in that. Um, but the the interaction itself it goes it goes how teenage boys go. You know, the, there's a disagreement. Somebody says something about the other's mom and they're ready to go to blows. And that's just, that's how it goes when you're 15 and, and you're a, a guy with testosterone and, you know, living in a dorm. It also smells bad. Just letting you know that part too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I guess like, it, you know, if we take this into a real world context, I guess like in the wizarding world, cancel culture does exist while it doesn't really exist in our world. Like people think it is like people can, you know, a hundred percent just like jump ship on Harry after, you know, the daily prophet makes him out to be someone that's attention seeking and making up lies. Um, you know, and you know, if, if, this was in our world, like, yeah, people would still be on Harry's side, especially, and I totally forgot about the detail of, 
Hermione getting hate mail in Goblet of Fire. And so people were like threatening Hermione during that. Like people definitely should still be on Harry's side now and like writing into the ministry. Although I wouldn't put it past the ministry, especially the Daily Prophet, to just like not publish those letters to the editor if they are coming in. That's true. They could cover those up. They could quiet them down. But I feel like there would at least be there would at least be mention of it somewhere in the pages. We would get a a a remus before they go to the train. Hey, we know that this has been happening, but you know, just so you know, or an Arthur who's actually in the ministry. Like, yeah, I we've been getting support, you know, letters for you for the whole time that they've been doing this don't don't feel like it's all everybody has turned against you but these people are either very very quiet or it's being hushed up very very well or i'm just harping on the wrong detail of this book yeah and yeah so so we can totally go down that rabbit hole about the daily prophet and the ministry and i think our introduction to luna actually brings us into that really well um you know this the first time we've met Luna Lovegood and you know she's kind of quirky um and you know her father is the editor of the quibbler which is the first non-daily profit magazine slash newspaper that we get introduced to in this series and you know it's full of just like fake news stories just like Hermione even says like everyone knows that it's full of crap like blatantly untrue stories from like the story about Sirius talking about him actually being the lead singer of the that. Hobgoblins, <laughs> which is just like the Love best story. Um, and then the one about Fudge, which just talks about him wanting to seize control of the gold supplies and that he isn't actually looking to coexist with the goblins like he says he wants to. And it says that he's had goblins drowned, thrown off buildings, poisoned and cooked in pies. Um so essentially we've seen that the daily prophet even back in book four was sort of laying the groundwork to discredit harry like rita skeeter started this whole thing (laughs) and then the daily prophet capitalized on it and so i guess how does the quibbler compare to the daily prophet so like the quibbler has stories that we know as readers are factually untrue while the daily prophet is just printing subtle stabs at Harry to discredit him and to discredit Dumbledore and also is hiding the truth from the public. So I guess, how do we reckon with both of these like newspapers in the wizarding world that just aren't accurate at all? Yeah, I, I think I did a thing. So I know that you like to bring in outside sources when you are going through your podcasts. Um, So in my attempt to be somewhat prepared for your format, I may have gone down a rabbit hole myself. Um, So I'm going to use uh, examples from here in the States uh, because I don't know anything about media outside of the u.s sorry i just don't get it um so i don't understand it but the the quibbler this is obviously the national Enquirer, right 
like this is the magazine that you stick right next to the checkout at the grocery store to grab people's attention and make them read some some gossip stuff that's like whoa mind-blowing and according to which this this blew my mind that thing's been around since 1926 did you know it was that old i did not know it was that old (laughs) This is all according to Wikipedia, which is 100% factually accurate at all times, <laughs> but 1926 and apparently sold in 2019, I believe it was, uh, no, yeah, 2019 or 18. I don't know. I can't do math. I said three years ago in my notes, which time has no meaning anymore, um, but it sold for a hundred million dollars. Oh my God. Is that insane? Like people see it as tabloid trash. It's unfounded accusations, rumors, gossip, factless stories, clickbait before Mark Zuckerberg's grandfather stopped thinking girls had cooties, which sounds exactly like the quibbler, except the Zuckerbergs probably didn't have anything to do with that one. But people obviously are reading it or it wouldn't sell for a hundred million dollars which is ironically the same amount of money that in March, 2020 Mark Zuckerberg promised to spend as a part of Facebook to try to help local reporting outlets during the pandemic. So interesting. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Apparently his family would have been pure blood or something. I, (laughs) I say all that just to say that like this magazine seems like a complete joke, but there's, at least enough of an audience there that Luna's dad is making a living off of it. There's obviously readers to some degree. Otherwise he wouldn't have a job or anything to print and stories are coming in. Like there's people who want to contribute to it. So there's something here, but then if we take that comparison and we put it to the profit, who are they? They're the New York times right which is the big official media outlet apparently at the same uh time that the national Enquirer was being sold for a hundred million dollars the uh the new york times was said to have 1.8 billion with a b in revenue so the comparison is a bit damning um but i think is a really good allegory for this relationship between the prophet and the quibbler. But what the, what the difference is with how news media works here and how it apparently works in the wizarding world is that at least in our world, as annoying as all of these outlets are on their own, we have a ton of them with different agendas. Fox News, CNN, there's you know the ABCs, the NBCs, the CBSs, there's the you know tin hat wearers on YouTube. We get information all over the place and we at least for all of its flaws have the ability to take information from multiple sources and form our own opinion on what is actually going down it seems like they don't have that in the slightest it's just the profit and which weekly talking about lockhart's smile right and that's what they have like that's that's it uh, 
I think there there's that one. And I think we hear just in passing a couple of just um, what are they like specialized magazines, things like, you know, that maybe focus on potions and stuff like, you know, little things like that. But as far as news and getting information, this is it. We don't know of any, any other source, uh, which is it's mind blowing. Um, yeah, we literally do. don't know anything about any other outside news sources. And none. It's it's so concerning because it's like you have the quibbler, which yes, is like locally run, I guess, um, by Luna's father. Um, with you know, these stories that we know are untrue. And then you have like the Daily Prophet, which is supposed to be like the big trustworthy newspaper like you can get a like a daily print edition of it like every morning this is how as we know currently how wizards get their news and it is literally directly run by the government like i'm pretty sure in goblet of fire fudge is like oh you know if we if we do this you know we can still make like the morning edition and it's like you're the minister and you are literally like influencing the top headline of like the following day. Well, see, that's in this is the rabbit hole that I wanted to try to take you down. Um, if you would indulge me, is that when did that shift happen? Because if you remember in the beginning of book four, during the um, World Cup of Quidditch, which has a better name than that that i is escaping my mind right now but it was they were afraid of the prophet and what news was going to be printed and the prophet was actually going after the ministry had spearheaded by rita skeeter herself she was after him tooth and nail talking about just incompetence in the ministry when did they get in and take control how did that happen a really interesting question. And I think, I mean, I feel like the Daily Prophet has always been like, I'm sure its office has always been within the Ministry of Magic. And so it's already been sort of like a part of that sort of entity. But I think, you know, Rita Skeeter has a line, I'm pretty sure, in Goblet of Fire, where she's talking about how, you know, Rita Skeeter writes about sort of just whatever the public perception is of the day, right? Like people love Harry. She'll write an article like just adoring Harry. People don't like Harry so much. She's going to write an article that doesn't put him in like a very good light. She just kind of, you know, I would almost say she rides the wave of like public emotion, but I also feel like she creates that public wave of emotion any like through her articles. I feel like she directly influences that. And then I feel like something must have happened between, you know, the showdown between Dumbledore and Fudge in the infirmary in Goblet of Fire and the beginning of book five. And I know that's such a short time span. Like that's like only a couple of weeks. Um, But I think the divide kind of started. I wonder if someone like within the Ministry of Magic sort of saw the influence that Rita Skeeter had and sort of saw the influence that the Daily Prophet could have on their audience. And then when Dumbledore and Fudge have their falling out and Fudge like, you know, 
already has been influenced by Rita Skeeter because like he already thinks Harry's crazy and like that automatically makes him not believe Harry from like the first moment that he arrives in the infirmary. I wonder if that sort of parting of the ways with Dumbledore is what then began Fudge's paranoia about Dumbledore's power because as we learn in this book you know Fudge knows that Dumbledore has a lot more influence than he does. He knows that Dumbledore is a lot more powerful than he is. He knows Dumbledore is probably more likable (laughs) than, than he is. And I wonder if sort of that was the moment that he started to take advantage of the fact that people can be swayed by the Daily Prophet. And I'm sure when Dumbledore was like, you have to get ahead of this and you have to make sure that the Dementors don't join Voldemort and Fudge was like you're crazy I'm sure Fudge was like okay I think we need to get ahead of this story now and make sure that people don't believe Dumbledore because he's probably going to continue saying it and so that's probably when the whole influence of Fudge trying to control every aspect about the ministry started like because now like no employee can have contact with Dumbledore which is crazy and yeah yeah and can i throw and a I, theory out there please do this literally just popped into my head as you were talking what else happened between the end of book four and the chapter that we are or the beginning of book five as it relates to the daily prophet i'm going to give you a hint there was a bug involved is it possible that as much as we hate her, like with fire burning passion, that Rita Skeeter was actually the only one willing to write against the ministry agenda? And the fact that Hermione stuck her in a jar <laughs> and told her that she couldn't write, maybe that is what actually wound up causing the daily prophet to just become the ministry's bullhorn i i hadn't thought of it until literally two minutes ago (laughs) i think yeah i feel like there's definitely like a lot there to think about and i feel like i feel like yeah like i think well i think it depends i part of me feels like yeah rita skater would probably write whatever article is going to make her the most money but if the if the ministry of magic supplies the paycheck for the daily profit, then I feel like she would be like, okay, maybe I won't write that as long as I can keep getting paid. Um, but she did. She did in the beginning of before. So okay. that's true. We, I don't know. Like it's, that's why I said I, that's where in my notes, I just put like, when did this shift happen? Like, when did they yeah. get in and like basically take over? Like, how did that ha- How did it flip so quickly to that? And then as you were talking about Rita Skeeter, I was like, guess who's not writing anymore mm-hmm. because she's being blackmailed. <laughs> yeah. And it's so interesting because she completely, I feel like she, I'm convinced that she laid the groundwork for like exactly what Fudge is she doing totally now. Did. Like he was like, oh, see, like people can be led to believe that this person like isn't actually, you know, who they say they are or, you know, they're not as likable as, you know, they were before. And I think like 
I think we saw in the last book that like in Rita's articles, like there is some essence of truth there. Like she takes like one factual piece and then puts like a huge spin on it to shape people's opinions of others like Harry and Hagrid. Um, And I think whenever the moment was that Fudge decided to exercise more control over the Daily Prophet is probably when either he or someone on his staff like looked at what Rita Skeeter had been doing all of last book and they were like that worked we should just continue doing exactly what she did (laughs) yeah and she's not in our way to call us on it right no that's that's uh it's equal parts insane and equal parts makes perfect sense which basically makes it Harry Potter yeah (laughs) Yeah. So I guess like taking into account where we are in the wizarding world right now and sort of the stakes that are slowly beginning to raise, you know, what does it say about the wizarding world and like the situation that they're in that there doesn't seem to be like an open and fair press (laughs) anywhere to be seen in this very crucial moment where someone who is definitely evil is gaining power and people just aren't going to know about it if they have so much faith in the ministry like people like percy are never going to know about this um because they just blindly follow what the ministry is telling them Mm -hmm. yeah well he's been on that train all the way back i was listening to an older episode of yours earlier today actually and it was when uh, he suggested to Dumbledore back in book three that they get the Dementors when they were trying to find Sirius Black in the castle. And Dumbledore was like, just shut it down. And um, you and um, your guests from Creating Magic, I believe is what they're called, uh, yep. brought up that Percy responded to that like completely abashed that Dumbledore would say that and like kind of go and to me that read 100% as well that's what the ministry would have done why are you not doing it so but that's that's Percy in a nutshell he's he's kind of the worst um but (laughs) a little bit (laughs) (laughs) he he really he's he's been the worst although it, it did make me think back that he's also the introduction that Harry got in Hogwarts He's the first person at the Gryffindor table that he got to talk to. And at that point, he was like revering about Dumbledore. I don't know if that's a real word, revering. I don't know. But he was kind of gushing about how he's a bit mad, but a complete genius back then. And then almost like Percy is like the type of person that like is only nice to people that like can give him a leg up somewhere. Yeah, fair. Um, but as far as your my tangent aside, um, I th- I want to say, or at least I want to pose the question: Does does it have anything to do with the fact that they have not progressed in, in any way since, like, you know, twelve hundred BC? Quills and torches, candlelight outposts like they i'm pretty sure the streets are cobbled nobody's seen a car like it's it is very much time halted somewhere back in the strange strange times 
of you know outdoor toilets uh, the i'm not going to go down the the rabbit hole that people bring up about when hogwarts got plumbing it's but is it possible that because they never progressed to be more modern in any form of their daily life because they just relied on magic for everything they didn't develop the uh, other outlets or other avenues to receive information or to go find it for themselves there's there's no accio google in the wizarding world so is there is there any correlation there perhaps i think that there definitely could be i mean i feel like yes like the wizarding world is a lot more advanced than us in certain ways you know with magic and you know sort of the stuff that they can cure magically um but yes you're right that they're very behind <laughs> in a lot of other ways <laughs> And yeah, I mean, that certainly could be a part of it. Like, we don't even know like what, I mean, we don't get a breakdown of like what wizarding government consists of. Like, do they have sort of the equivalent of like free speech? Is there like, I mean, it certainly doesn't seem like there's a separation of powers at all (laughs) Um, in in this world. (laughs) Um, It doesn't sound like they vote either. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I know we hear about Fudge like winning an election, but like, or like, I don't know, getting chosen for office because like a lot of people wanted Dumbledore to be minister and he didn't want it. Mm -hmm. But we, yeah, Yeah. we don't really get any info about like that practice. I don't know either. Maybe we're just dumb Americans. I don't know. Um, But it does, it does seem, it, it seems odd that they have one source of i suppose there could be a radio program they have radios we hear they nothing do. TV. but so, yeah i know oh, i i'm, I'm yeah. convinced that the wizarding world needs its own version of npr that's that's fair i um in one of my recent episodes i said something about uh and this is not going to be a spoiler but i said something about uh hagrid going through the leaky cauldron and uh, being asked for the usual and i was like what does that look like you know would in the wizarding world what is the usual what do you do it's thursday night you're gonna go watch like expecto projecto quidditch on the screen in the local pub you're gonna have your butter beer or your fire whiskey and what and how many of them does hagrid have <laughs> but it's the same it's kind of the same like i'm drawing a correlation here to how do you how do you learn anything aside from reading the paper? How do you get any information at all? There's no, there's no flicking on the news. You, you could do that if you lived with the Dursleys, apparently, if you're hiding in a bush to hear it, but there's no, there's just, there's nothing else. They have no other options. So apparently in the, that's what it opens you up to is being fed a line of crap. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's we literally don't know of any other way to like get current information. Um, but when you were talking about sort of the wizarding world sort of being paused and not progressing, it reminded me of um, one of the lines in Umbridge's speech mm. and sort of her talking about, you know, it's 
so that that's another sort of wrench in the whole thing of arriving at Hogwarts. Like now this person that was, you know, at Harry's hearing is now working at Hogwarts and she interrupts Dumbledore to give this like very long-winded speech. And, you know, she ta- she talks about, you know, ancient skills must be passed down so we don't lose them. Tried and tested traditions require no tinkering, a balance between old and new. Some habits will be retained while others outmoded and outworn must be abandoned. And so what you were saying about tradition and like sort of them being stuck and not progressing kind of reminded me of all of those things that she said in her speech. And I want to talk about her speech because to me, it sort of seems like, you know, and kind of like how Ron and Harry react to it. They don't really think much of it other than like, that was a really boring speech while like Hermione sort of catches the deeper meaning of it. Right. And I think, you know, what's so scary about Umbridge's speech is that, you know, she, she does the thing that a lot of politicians do where she words things in a way where like the real meaning is hidden under words that really don't sound that bad on the surface, you know, like, of course you want to bring like tried and true, like traditions down and like sort of preserve that part of, you know, the culture and you want to have a balance between old and new, you know, but there's just like, there's a deeper meaning there that she's not like explicitly saying that you really have to pay attention to because like on the surface, it doesn't sound that bad, but like, she definitely means these things in a way of like whatever the ministry agenda currently is to change things up because the ministry doesn't trust Dumbledore now. Yeah. And that was, that was something that I, that I put in my notes was, uh, I don't truthfully, I don't get it. So uh, here in what I don't get is what is the ministry's issue with the innovation that she calls it? Like, what do they think? What do they think has changed in the education system? What new thing has developed? Like we just said, they haven't developed you know anything ever. So why would we think that the education that is happening at Hogwarts is any different? It's, what what is the innovative thing what's the shiny new way of schooling that fudge is like oh no that's terrible for us because it's gonna make dumbledore better than me i like i don't what is the innovative practice that she's trying to squash out or in this speech like i don't i can't even hypothesize what it is I don't even know if it's like an actual thing that he's like worried about. I feel like it's almost like this is the only area of the wizarding world that we know of that the ministry doesn't have direct control over. Like, and I think, you know, Dumbledore, this is where Dumbledore has free reign. Like, yes, you took all of Dumbledore's titles and you kicked him off the wizarding high court and you're making sure nobody talks to Dumbledore in your office. Right. But Dumbledore is still allowed to do whatever he wants at Hogwarts, because that is, you know, where he rules, right? And Fudge tried to exercise power over Hogwarts by expelling Harry before his hearing. And Dumbledore has to remind him, like, in front of everybody, like, you don't have the power to do that. That's actually not something that you can do. Um, You also can't confiscate his wand until after charges have been, like, figured out. Um, And so I wonder if 
that's really what it is that, you know, she's, they're just using the word innovation maybe as part of, you know, this speech so that it doesn't sound so bad, <laughs> um, you know, but it's really sort of like Fudge is like, okay, this is the one place that Dumbledore has more power than me. And I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's a good point. I, because I, I got hung up on the, on the progress and the innovation and all that stuff. It, because the speech on it in, on its face sounds like she's saying we need to go backwards. We need to get rid of something new that's happening now that is detrimental to the agenda that we're trying to push. We need to regress in the way that we educate our students. And it made me think like these, they don't have a ballpoint pen. Like what, what innovation has right. happened to, <laughs> to the educational system that is, that's true. What are you going I mean, back to? Are we rock and chiseling this thing? Like, yeah, the owls are going to get weighed down. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how far back they can go. I mean, I mean, maybe that's something that, you know, we'll see like later on in this book. It, we'll see maybe like what she means by innovation, if she does mean like actual innovation and isn't just like sort of using it as an excuse to sort of justify why she's here. Right. Um, right. Because she's going to be significant, right? Like it's not a spoiler to say that every single no. like, okay, so I'm, I'm going to like do some disclaimers. The author is not writing the same book over and over and over and over again, but there are certain things that we can count on in each of the books pretty much every time. It's, you know, we start with Harry spending some time at the Dursleys. He has some sort of obstacle before school starts. We'll probably run into Draco, likely on the train. We're going to get to school and meet a new Defense Against the Dark Arts professor and you know, the book happens throughout the school year and there's a climax at the end. So far, quite heroic. That's been the formula for each book. And every single one of those new Defense Against the Dark Arts professors have not filled the same role in the book. They've had varying levels of, you know, the type of character that they are, but they're always a significant character, whether they be friend or foe. So the question at this point is, what is Umbridge going to be? Right now, it looks like she's the ministry's plant, and in theory, you would think that that would make her a quote-unquote good guy because she's part of the ministry, but the ministry just ran a smear campaign on a 15-year-old kid and tried to railroad him in a criminal trial for, you know, uh, for not dying, and so you wonder, like, maybe not necessarily the good guys, but we also know that not everybody in the ministry is on the same page. We have Arthur that's in there. We have, you know, we have varying levels of uh, devotion to the ministry within the ministry walls that we know of at this point in the story. So we, we don't know where she's going to land in all of this. We just know that she's not going to be a silent background character and she hems her way to making that just blatantly obvious. Yeah. I, I, that's so true. I mean, yeah, like every defense against the dark arts teacher that we have met since the beginning um, has had a role of some sort. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, I feel like I certainly don't get good vibes from her um, just based no. off the fact that she's like undersecretary to the minister and like was at Harry's hearing. So like our first impression of her like wasn't that good. <laughs> um, and, you know, Harry talks about, you know, having this very deep dislike of her like right off the bat. And I just feel like seeing her at the hearing and then Harry gets to school and, you know, um, sees her like right, like almost right away. just doesn't seem like a very good sign (laughs) to me. That's that Umbridge woman. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't get a good vibe, which is interesting because it, it wouldn't be hard for that to be a red herring, right? Like this thing could take so many turns and I'm super jealous of the people who are reading this for the first time and they get to take all of the turns. We know what happens. So we just get to try to see it from a different perspective each time. At least that's what I'm, you know, the way that I'm approaching it. Um, But yeah, it's, there's going to be a ride it's going to resemble that of some sort of a roller coaster. I don't know how you feel about roller coasters. You know, I don't mind them as long as they don't go upside down, but you know, who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Yeah, I mean, um, I feel like we, like we're definitely in for something in, in this book, mm -hmm. especially after the sorting hat gives its song slash speech. And it's like yeah. way different than what we've seen before. Um, sort of, what, I guess, what was your like first impression of like reading that speech in this book after, you know, everything we've read so far? So it actually gives us like a, a bit of a recap of how the founders split. And to me that I don't recall getting that previously we had the chamber of secrets where they talked about the chamber of secrets and how it was slytherin's you know monster and his lair and whatever it had the big statue with his face on it he was clearly a very humble guy but the we didn't really get detail on how the you know that it was common knowledge of how the founders broke apart and so the hats kind of ditching the dirt and he's He's more direct than I remembered, and I'm calling it a he. It is more direct than I remember. I think it's just the voice from the movies in my head. Um, But blatantly saying things like Slytherin wanted just the purebloods, and that was the only ones that he let into his house when he was here. And, you know, how Ravenclaw was like, I'm not letting any idiots in my house. And Gryffindor just wanted the the brave people and Hufflepuff is like, you guys all suck. I'm just going to teach everybody what I know. And it's, it was spelled out more than I recalled. Um, And also that it doesn't actually want to sort them. It has to sort them. It is a sorting hat. So it is forced to do this thing. And a couple of things jumped to my mind when it gave its warning, where it was basically saying, we need the houses to come together and be united because we are at, um, I guess at what's the word that I'm uh, thinking of. We're in danger. We're at risk of outside forces trying to penetrate the walls and, you know, 
there's some there's some stuff on the horizon you know coming our way and we need to be ready to face it as a school as a as hogwarts not as our individual houses and i got a weird like what is this outside force that he's talking about is it the fact that the hat knows somehow and can sense that Voldemort is truly back and that is are we to believe that Voldemort is going to try to you know, break the walls down and come in and infiltrate the school and try to kill Dumbledore there because that's the only one truly in his way or the outside forces possibly the ministry coming in and trying to take over the school and is he literally giving this speech to say, stand up to this pink toadstool that is talking behind me? It's, again, a new perspective in this reading of it that I hadn't thought of, like, what is this outside forces? Because I think the first, you know, I don't know how many times I've read this series, the first dozen times I've read it, I was thinking Voldemort, you know, but could it have been? something else that is a little bit more literal inside right now. Yeah. I mean, especially when you take into the account, the juxtaposition of like the how of the hat, you know, giving this speech and then like Umbridge, you know, giving her speech. Um, I will say that there were, there were a few different things I, I took away from it. And um, what stood out to me was that, and, and maybe I'm remembering this because of the of how the movies present sort of the divide between the founders and I feel like before this we were always assuming that sort of the divide between the founders was just Slytherin's fault like nobody else's but it seemed like this time the way that the hat was describing it was that it was kind of like everybody sort of wanted their way to be right and you know, I've talked before in this book about sort of the idea of division and we sort of start to see certain divides here. And, you know, we've also seen divides amongst the houses since the beginning of the book. Like, <laughs> um, you know, so the hat talks about how, you know, there was this division between the four founders and, you know, they all had different opinions on who they wanted to teach. But, you know, with all of the students divided amongst the four of them, it, it really wasn't a big deal. Like it was all okay. Like they could, their that division could kind of coexist for a while. Um, but the issue came out when like the different divides wanted power over the others. So that's what kind of ruined the harmony that they once had and caused it all to collapse. And my reading of it was it wasn't just Slytherin wanting to just teach purebloods. It was like, it sounded more like they all wanted their way to be right. And that was ultimately the division that couldn't coexist that sort of caused everything to fall apart for them. And the hat talks about how the houses haven't been united since Slytherin left. And we've seen that. Um, we've seen houses, certain houses, unite together against other houses, namely like everybody against Slytherin in the first couple books. And then again, in the fourth book, mm -hmm. when everybody united against Harry because they thought Harry was stealing mm -hmm. Cedric's thunder. Yeah. Yeah. I did take that to be not necessarily that it was explicitly in the song all Slytherin's fault, but I took it to mean that the dueling and the fighting and the, like the, you know, the chaos stopped 
when Slytherin left, which I think does at least suggest that he had a heavy hand in what was going down. And But I think your point about the houses never truly being aligned again or, you know, being united again was kind of shot as soon as he left. But I would... I would like to know how how united they were previously because they were already splitting them up in the same general way that they are now. They you know, put this sorting hat in place to literally say, hey, you remember the kids that I picked? Pick them again. Now let them gone. You know, it's I don't I would be curious to know how much changed. And I'm sure there's probably ancillary stuff that you can probably go down you know potter no more and find um that might talk about it but that was that was something that jumped out to me was once slytherin left people stopped trying to kill each other in the hallways so that's probably a a good thing uh and and suggests that he probably had a had a uh at least a, a major role but he might not have been the only you know the only issue it was just kind of that was the getting rid of that helped the rest gel a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's interesting. And I do, I do remember um, you talking a lot about the other houses ganging up on Slytherin in the first couple of books. And I would like to remind you that it's not just because we have some really crappy Slytherin characters in this book Slytherin had won the House Cup like six years in a row leading into Harry's first year. So naturally, like everybody wants somebody to take them down. It would have been the same if it would have been (laughs) Ravenclaw or Hufflepuff or Gryffindor. Like it would literally anyone else. (laughs) Yes, anybody else win. It just so happened that our author made it them and then also put some of the shittiest characters in the house (laughs) literally the worst i know yeah and i think that's what's like so interesting here is that like you know because the sorting hat does talk about you know how you know division really isn't good we have to be united but you know there was some division when hogwarts first started and things were okay for a while and it sort of made me think of you know, we can sort of, we don't all have to be on the same team, but we can still work together um, and be united, you know, even with our differences and our different qualities. And I think the speech talk, like it, it says a lot about the consequences of not coming together, you know, seeing each other as enemies instead of unifying against the real enemy is what threatens everybody. And sort of caused this, you know, sort of unhealable rift between the houses and the founders. And if we just like look at this moment, it's, you know, Nearly Headless Nick talks about how the hat, the, the hat has sort of had warnings before, right? But things must be really bad right now because it, it does not usually do this. We have not seen this before in this book series so far. And Nick says that the advice has always been the same, like to stand together and unite as one. So what does it mean that it's needed to give this warning before and has always just given the same advice? 
it means that they are not progressing and they're not innovating. And maybe there's something broken about the whole concept of splitting them up the way that they do anyways. And that's not a novel concept. I've heard many a podcast go down, you know, the, the speech of how problematic it is to take actual characteristics of 11 year olds and put them into houses of only people with, you know, certain characteristics that how that just kind of breeds more of that characteristic and, and fuels whatever that is and how just continuously pitting the houses against each other through competition and sport and, you know, having the house cups and having all of this stuff, there's always competition between them. And that's going to have rivalry. It's almost like you have four different high schools going to the same like large campus every year. And you have, I assume you went to high school somewhere. You had your rival school that you hated. And every time the football teams came together, the, you know, kids would go across the, you know, cross the boundary lines and get in a fight with somebody like that's just how it went down. Or maybe that's just how it went down for me, but like they have it within their own walls and you have that just going down generation after generation after generation, because there's also a very strong familial tie in these houses. So you have a bunch of families who have had all of their generations in the same house and they all have to start to develop the same, you know, preferences and what school colors they wear. And, you know, it, it's Yankees, Red Sox, Ohio state, Michigan, it's, you know, Lakers Celtics. It's you, you breed that and you know, the, the claws come out. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point because I feel like, you know, on the surface, Competition isn't necessarily a bad thing and doesn't necessarily have to divide no. people. Like, you know, when we when we look at the Olympics, like countries are competing against each other, but it's it's always been sort of a celebration of like coming together over over sports. But I think you really hit the nail on the head as far as how generational this is and how, you know, with the houses, yes, grouping people together with the same qualities and kind of creating its own like sort of echo chamber of like the same type of people. And especially when you look at, you know, people like the Malfoys where Drago's whole family has been in Slytherin. Like that's, you know, if you're a Malfoy, like you're going to be in Slytherin. And so that kind of very much becomes part of your identity. And then it kind of becomes like, you can't be in any other house because that's not what we do. And also like, sort of all of that rivalry comes with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just like Yankees and Red Sox or, you know, in my case, like Islanders Rangers, like, you know, it's, Ah, I forgot hockey, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, like that, that's not something that goes away, even just like in a mild case of like, you know, I've been an Islanders fan for a few years now, but like, my dad's a huge Islanders fan, like OG Islanders fan. So like, you're never going to catch me rooting for the Rangers. Like, that's just not, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. It can't happen. And, no, you know, it can't, or you get kicked out of the house. Right. Like you gotta, you know, you gotta have food to eat, but um, no, I, I did hear somebody suggest that the, 
the solution because you you still you also you have to sort right like you can't just have however many of these students there are and just like you teach them all in mass you know you, you got to break them up somehow but i've i've heard people suggest randomizing it or you know taking even doing the characteristic thing and then like dispersing them in different how you know what i mean like we have we have three brainiacs in team ravenclaw let, let's get them a jock or you know we've in mix and matching a little bit in that way to help alleviate some of that i don't know i'm i don't have yeah. the solutions i don't we I really don't see any sort of <laughs> intermingling of right students at, at they don't, they don't even sit at different tables yeah i like the only time we see like kids from other houses like mingling with each other is like at the yule ball and i feel like you know i'm sure there are like other extracurricular activities that people do but like we never see it you know like the only extracurricular well, Harry we never see, sees it. well true and you know the only extracurricular thing we see is quidditch but even then that's based on your house as well like you're not going to play for ravenclaw if you're a gryffindor yeah Again, Harry's not going down to the Gobstones tournament. Like, <laughs> no, you know he's he's just not. So we don't we don't get to see that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's and it's it also echoes what Dumbledore's sentiment was at the end of Book Four. We need to come together, and you know, and he was talking internationally as well. But it's mm-hmm. the same concept. This it's almost like the hat just kind of took it and remixed it for this year's you know, sorting ceremony. Yeah, probably because people needed a reminder. That's fair. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if we move away from both of like the two biggest things in these chapters, um, what do we think is the deal with A, Hagrid missing and B, with these invisible horses that all of a sudden Harry can see? I have a lot of problems with the invisible horses. Okay. Um, if I'm honest. It just doesn't land. Uh, And I'm, you know, to avoid, because we do learn later in the book how it works. um, So I don't want to spoil any of that stuff. But think of someone like Luna, who walks up to Harry, reassures him, you're not crazy. I can see them too. I've been able to see them since my first day here. This is the first we're hearing about them. Are we supposed to believe that these are the only two students that have ever seen these invisible horses? Nobody has ever spoken of this ever. There's never been a rumor mill about these invisible horses and whatever is happening. This isn't something that the twins would absolutely hang over Ron's head before he gets to Hogwarts. Like These things have just never ever come up ever to me it doesn't it doesn't land but they're there they exist in on these pages so we have to look at them as what happened you know what why what changed between the time that harry got on the carriage in book four and took it to the castle and getting on the carriage in book five and taking it to the castle. Like what of whatever we you know, um, saw could have caused these things to just show up for him. 
Apparently. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I think of that because I think, you know, as we know how rumors spread through Hogwarts, I think you're so right that sometime, somewhere, someone must have like said something. And I feel bad for any of the students that can also see these horses that kind of, you know, had the same moment that Harry does where he's like, don't you see the horse like right there? And Ron's like, what are you talking about? And then Harry's like, <laughs> oh, I must be insane. Like how many students? Yeah had that experience and then just kept it to themselves thinking they're crazy. This is how you wind up with having one news source that tells <laughs> all of the news and people just, you know, nope, I'm, I'm not saying anything. Nope. Nope. I'm Aww. nuts. Yeah. Cause I, I can get. see weird horses. I'm crazy. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It, you know what it reminded one that, me of? What's that? It reminded me of, you know, how in book three, when Harry starts to think he's going crazy um, when he sees Sirius, but he doesn't know what's serious on the grounds. He just mm. thinks he's seeing the grim all the time. The grim. And it's mm. it always catches him at moments where like other people aren't really seeing it, but like Sirius is always like pretty far away, like when it happens. So mm. it's like Sirius could have easily just like exited it frame. Works plot. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me of the same like sort of feeling that he had, but like, it's very different this time because he's right in front of it. This isn't like him thinking he sees a dog like outside the window yeah. from like his dorm and like Ron very much like doesn't see it. And it, it does surprise me that like Harry kind of drops it so quickly. I feel like I would have been like constantly asking like what do you mean you don't see it? Like I, like I, that's all I would have been talking about on my way up to I the castle. <laughs> And these are 15 year olds at this point, like somebody's throwing a rock. I don't mean that to sound bad, but somebody's going to show there is a physical object here. Yes. If it's <laughs> not here, it'll just go through. And if it is here, the rock is going to bounce off of something. And somebody's throwing that rock. Hell, Hermione might throw that rock. She would I mean, be the logical one. Like you like Harry could even just like pet it or something right i'm not condoning like, throwing here. rocks i'm just <laughs> <laughs> don't don't abuse the the strange invisible horses please yeah um yeah and you know who could probably answer the question for harry hagrid but hagrid's hagrid. not here yeah so where is he where yeah well this was this was another one of those in this this is a clever piece of, of, of writing because we have the answer. And I don't mean you and I, because we've read the series before. I mean, the pages have told us the answer to this. Um, and obviously we don't want to go too, too crazy far down, but it is one of those storylines where, you know, Harry knows that Dumbledore left a task for Hagrid over the summer. He, reflects on it in the pages and wonders oh is he not back yet is he not done yet with whatever he had to do hopefully he didn't get injured you know whatever and they're they're just you know brushing that off as a possibility they don't even want to think about it um but it's we uh dumbledore didn't just flat out say this is what hagrid's doing but dumbledore's actions in the last book could give us a hint as to what hagrid might possibly be doing based on right. what we've learned in that book um but what's what really stood out to me this time that i didn't 
pay much attention to or remember from any other time that I've read this. I make it sound like I've read this like a thousand times. Um, <laughs> it hasn't been that many, I swear, like a, a couple, um, particularly uh, this book, because Caps Lock Harry sometimes makes me cringe um, and other things that we won't get into. But it was the reaction to Hagrid being gone and particularly um you know the way he almost got like what is what is grubbly plank doing here you know what i mean and and i always i always remembered harry being defensive about hagrid and i remembered hermione being a little hesitant you know in this engagement weird word for that with um luna when she was like, yeah, we kind of think he's a joke or whatever. Um, but what I had forgotten is how quickly Ron and Ginny were also like immediately in Hagrid's defense. And I like totally spaced that uh, previously. So it one, it, it got me in the, you know, in, in the feels again, kid lingo. Did I get that one? Right. Um, but they, uh, it, it made me feel good that they they stood up for him, but then it made me ask, like, what do you think of Hagrid as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this whole thing is just like a whole, you know, it's another wrench in like, you know, the usual back mm-hmm. to Hogwarts moment. You know, Hagrid yeah. is such a staple of Hogwarts, you know, he has been since book one. And so to not have him there and have all these other weird things going on just sort of makes it very... It's it feels uneasy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to Hagrid's teaching, I feel like I don't think Hagrid's a bad teacher. I feel like he just doesn't have a lot of teaching experience. Like he doesn't really like know how to make lesson plans. He's just kind of like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. You know, we'll talk about this today. Mm-hmm. But like, there's no doubt that Hagrid knows what he's doing and knows how to take care of magical creatures. Like, even though like, yeah he likes to experiment and like, you know, likes to have the blast ended scroots and like, you know, Hagrid is someone who was able to, you know, have a three headed dog, not murder him and was able to have an acromantula, not murder him, you know, and Hagrid, you know, I'm sure his responsibilities around Hogwarts are like very involved and require a lot of hands-on knowledge. And so I think, you know, although he might not present it in the form, in like the sort of lesson form that most students would probably prefer, I don't think there's any doubt that Hagrid knows what he's talking about. Like, you can't just like have a whole group of hippogriffs and like not know what you're doing. you know yeah Yeah, i i asked because there's a you know uh a fondness for grubbly plank among other students that aren't defensive of haggard being their friend Uh, and it may it made me think about him as a teacher he's he clearly knows what he's doing he he is clearly very skilled with it um and i would actually argue that as a teacher when he is teaching them things he does so in a very competent way he like he um he doesn't leave them guessing he doesn't you know well, what do we do next i don't know figure it out 
you know, he, he's very, um, very good at explaining what to do and about the creatures and all of these things, but he has absolutely no clue how to develop or follow a curriculum. And the, the, the thing that I wrote down in my notes that gave me a, like, to wrap a bow around it, it was, he's, he's going into it and working through 100% based off of passion, not educator. Yeah, definitely. If he had somebody to oversight his class and say, you know, keep him out of the s- disasters like scroots and get him to like follow. No, this level of student needs to learn about these, you know, and keep him moving. He could teach them so much about every single one of those cre- and do yeah. a phenomenal job. He just cannot do the admin. <laughs> no, he yeah. Has to have somebody, <laughs> and somebody has to rein him in and say like, no, you can't do that yet you got to do this first you and yeah i don't know uh maybe the i heard somebody say on a podcast one time that they should tag team it grubbly plank and haggard they should and yeah i I feel like that could be the fact that i mean haggard kind of gets to pick and choose whatever he wants to do for for lesson plans like a i would be so stressed out if i didn't have like my whole year planned out (laughs) You know, and second of all, like, yes, Hagrid runs on passion only, (laughs) like, you know, but, you know, that's amazing because I feel like some of my favorite teachers that I've had, you know, through my education, like the ones that were really passionate about what they were teaching were the ones that really stuck with me and the ones I respected the most, um, so, yeah. So while I understand that I feel like a lot of the students probably want more organization and want, you know, because I don't, I don't think Hagrid gives quizzes or anything. I think they just like come and it's hands-on work and then whatever, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of students, probably ones like Hermione that like would want like a very concrete sort of lesson plan and know what they're, know what to expect in each class and where they're going throughout the year and Hagrid oh, that's just why she was run. hesitant. Right. And Hagrid <laughs> just doesn't run that way. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. I think the only thing left on my notes to talk about is um, back on the train where Cho walks in on Harry after they all get <laughs> stink sap <laughs> all over them after mm-hmm. Neville is showing Haven't off we all his been plant. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's such a, you know, and I don't, I don't say stereotypical in a bad way. I, but it is so stereotypical of like, you know, we all have that moment where, you know, we run into the person we like and we just wish we didn't look as embarrassing as we did. <laughs> yeah. It's never under ideal circumstances. No. And that doesn't change. You can be 15 on the Hogwarts Express. You can be you know, standing at the altar and, you know, burst out into tears or something. You, there's always something that just makes it never go the way that you thought that it was going to go down when it comes to the uh, person of interest in your life. <laughs> yeah. 
I think it's and when a you're very... writing for fiction, it has to be embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's a very like it's an it's a moment that I feel like we can all relate to. And like we all get secondhand embarrassment for Harry, you know, um, especially when it comes to Cho, because it's like he already went through a year of like wanting to ask her to the ball. And then like Cedric got to her first and he was kind of like, oh, well, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've also been there. <laughs> um, but it's also it's it's made even more frustrating and embarrassing when it was such a simple cleanup and fix, and it happened moments after she left. Yep. You almost wonder if Jenny didn't just wait a second, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's true. Like if, if if Ginny still has a crush on Harry, like she does from like book one and two, um, you know, that might be a good way to sort of like try to get Cho to not think Harry's cool. And then, you know, just wait <laughs> to cast your cleaning charm <laughs> until she's gone. <laughs> right. Or it's if she takes plan. after, or if she takes after Fred and George at all in yeah. the slightest because that is 100% something that they would be stoked to have witnessed yes it's so true <laughs> oh Harry poor Harry this was like a very rough start to the school year for him yeah this is not great this is <laughs> not great this is when the run-in when Malfoy is about four seconds long on the train you like there's got to be all kinds of other nonsense just beating him down and he gets yeah. plenty of it. Yeah. I mean, it's only I want to say, say it can only go up from here, but like, you know, with Harry Potter, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think we'll find out through the rest of the book. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't put it out now. No, I mean, it's long. Don't get me wrong. Like, this is a giant book, but you can't put it down now. <laughs> is there <You're> anything? <laughs> we are. Um, <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to touch on in these chapters? I don't think so. I think we I think we hit everything. I think we did. Yeah. I'm looking at my notes right Look at now. Us. I think... Nailed it. Organized in everything. <laughs> Unlike Hagrid's lesson plans. <laughs> Right. He had nothing to do with the production of this podcast. No. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy that you wanted to come on and have this conversation. No, thank you for having me. This was a blast. Is there anything you want to shout out? Let people know where they can find you. Um. Yeah, sure. So uh, all of the well, I, I won't say all of the socials. There's socials that I don't even know exist because, you know, I'm ancient. Um, but social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those at Belated Binge. Um, show segments get put up on YouTube if there's, you know, desire to watch me talk. Um, uh, the show's released to the public on Thursdays. Uh, we do weekly uh, and we're doing um, chapter a chapter or two at a time. Uh, we're back in the first book right now. So uh, if anybody wants to relive any of that uh, spoiler full, uh, they're more than welcome to 
to join us on our on our binge. I'll have all of the links to all of your stuff in uh, the show notes. And this was such an awesome conversation and I'm so glad that we did it. Um, So thank you again. No, this, this was great. Thank you. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones-Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash firstyearspodcast. That's Sarah with an H, and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.